Welcome to the Education Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsor, Limmer Education, we can make science more accessible and understandable. Okay, welcome. Oh, whoops, I guess I lost my screen here. Wow, that wasn't very good. Welcome everyone. <laughs> Uh, to the February 2024 Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Education Research Journal Club. Uh, the PCRF promotes research literacy to advance the science of EMS educational research. Here with the PCRF Journal Club, we take a closer look at some of the latest research happening in medical education. First, a big thank you to Limmer Education for sponsoring these podcasts so we can bring you the best of science in education. I'm Megan Corey. we got a great team today. We've got David Page. We have Katie O'Connor. We have Michael Caduce. We have Alex Tremblay. And we have, straight from Arizona, the retired, the wonderful Dr. Bill Toon. So today we're going to discuss this article published in the journal Scandinavian Journal of Trauma. This was just in 2023, a simulation-based randomized trial of ABCDE-style cognitive aid for emergency medical services, checklist in pre-hospital settings, that's the CHIPS study. So thank you all for joining us today. So we're going to begin, but we wanna remind you of a few things first. Um, you First of all, you can use the chat feature on your screen to type in questions, chat amongst yourselves, uh, generate some thoughts, and then we can bring any kind of questions from the Q&A into the conversation as we go. Remember, if you miss any of these, and actually, let me uh, forward this here. If we miss any of these, we do have our very own YouTube channel. So you can go back and, and re-listen to and look up um, some of our old journal clubs. So this is at youtube.com slash at PCRF at UCLA. We also have an announcement, and I know David Page is here, but, I, but he may or may not have a great connection. Um, if you can try, David, I'm just going to go ahead and jump in here. We do have an abstract deadline coming up. It's the usual. So those of you who have already done this before uh, may see and may have recognized this every June 30th. We have this abstract deadline. There he is. Um, David, did you want to say a few words about our? Yes, absolutely. Um, we're so excited to be partnered with uh uh, the uh, EMS World Expo Conference for the abstract. So uh, the International Scientific Symposium is uh, afoot uh, for Las Vegas in September. And um, for those that don't know, you get a $500 cash award and up to $2,000 in travel grant money uh, to be able to present your abstract in a conference, in an international conference overseas. So we're working closely with uh, our partners in Australia and the UK and all over uh, the world in, in Asia. And if um, if you're invited to one of those conferences to present your abstract, we will help uh, pay. And that that's for the top award. So if you submit to us, that's super cool. We're also paired with the Pre-Hospital Emergency Care Journal. So your abstract will appear in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care. And because we're closely tied with and support NAMSP's call for abstracts, you will also be able to do the call for abstracts for them. So we, our deadline is a little bit before then, but uh, we really want new research. So please, please, please uh, submit your research. Uh, your, you will have a, a complimentary admission to the uh, EMS World Expo, which is worth about 500 bucks these days if you're one of the first uh, 50 abstracts to be selected. So um, we're, we're super, super excited about what can come for uh, this September. Thank you, Megan. That's great. And you know what? I think today's discussion too might generate some ideas, some things that are doable. Maybe you thought about dipping your toe into research. Remember, we, the uh, PCRF also has um, applications for 
research workshops. So uh, check out the website for more on that. But when you, we think about this type of research um, that we're going to talk about today, there's even smaller things that you could um, think about doing in your own shop or maybe with somebody else that you connected with at one of the conferences or just in your area. So uh, let's get into this article, um, a simulation-based randomized trial of ABCDE-style cognitive aid. This is the CHIP study. Uh, and a little bit of background. So it's been 24 years since the Institute of Medicine published To Air is Human, Building a, self a Safer Healthcare System. Uh, this reported, if you remember, some of us remember this, uh, reported that people are dying from medical errors that occur in hospital. And at that time, it was estimated to be about 98,000 people a year dying from medical error. It underscored not only the urgency of the issue, but it also shifted the focus. Um, and it shifted it from the idea that there are bad individuals doing bad things to good individuals working in faulty systems. And I think that was sort of the beginning of the discussion, at least in medicine. Of course, we know it's been discussed in other high risk systems like aviation. Um, one of the ways that we can address human factors uh, and systemic error is standardization of practices based on evidence. Go figure. Uh, so in this discussion today, we're going to specifically take a look at the use of checklists, uh, cognitive aids, job aids. And we've talked about checklists on this before. We've got a couple people here who have worked in quality improvement, who have, you know, definitely, um, you know, Katie is always talking about, you know, job aids, job aids, big fan of job aids. So um, I, first, I want to take a minute and ask Michael Caduce to come on because he's the one who actually picked this article. So I wanted to know, Mike, if you could just describe this, what was it that stood out about this? Some people ask, how do we pick our articles? And this one comes out of the Scandinavian Journal of Trauma. It's a German study. So um, what made you pick this one? I think that's a great question, Megan, and um, I get this too quite regularly of like, why does why do certain articles get made, get on and others don't? And I think sometimes it's interesting where we find some of the EMS education journals, uh, like articles in the specific journals. Um, literally, it's a PubMed search for a few keywords like pre-hospital emergency medical services. Um, and then we look, I usually look back three to six months trying to find the most relevant documents. Sometimes it's easy and they get picked up by some of the more popular, like there's one article we're looking at right now for the clinical side that got just uh, just got picked up in Forbes. So, okay, that's hot. It's a hot button topic. EMS education, not so much, not making the front page of the Times. Mm -hmm. um, so it's usually just a Google search of a few keywords and then looking through the methods to see, is this something valuable? It's not a topic we've done a lot of recently. We've done checklists, but not in the last six months. So um, that's usually how we find the journals. And it's why sometimes we get some pretty interesting um, um, journals that we're like, oh, I didn't know. I, I sent, um, I was sending some text message back with Remley the other day. There's a published trade, uh, there's a peer reviewed journal for like zoology and zoo care, animals care. And I was like, I never thought this existed, but they were looking at Narcan usage for fentanyl overdoses in animals in the zoo. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting, but it yeah. hit my keyword search. Um, so I think the reason I picked this one was again, it's it's relevant, it, it came out in the last six months. So we like that. Uh, and checklists are becoming much more pertinent in other areas of, of not just aviation and healthcare, but in all kinds of other areas. I also, we always look at the methods. Um, Kim McKenna sold me on the Kirkpatrick's model of if we impact differences in students, does it in, lead to an impact in their patient care and in their communities? And so we're looking for articles that may make more of a difference to our students rather than like, did they just like it? Great, that's a starting point, but did it make a difference in their patient care? And these checklists have been demonstrated to do that, whether it's EMS or aviation or the operating room or whatnot. So I thought that was key. Um, and then their testing of this scenario, I thought was really sound. So they used their checklist in simulation. It wasn't, um, we're going to teach you this checklist and then we're going to make you take a test over it. It was, we're going to put it to play. Um, and they sort of designed a study around it. So it was, it was more of a prospective trial than a retrospective review of data. Um, so for all of those reasons, I thought it really had some sound methods um, and it had it was moving us in the right direction. And I think Europe, the EMS system in Europe, while different than the US, is a little bit more forward thinking on the standardization um, of mm -hmm. variables. And so I think they've probably got more buy-in of checklists than we do while it's not you know, verified. It seems like that seems to be the case. So um, those were some of the reasons that I really liked this article. 
Yeah, and I think um, it, it's important. So you mentioned, you know, the differences in culture around checklists. And if those of you out there have not read the book, it should be on your shelf. The Checklist Manifesto is a must read and a must refer to back and forth. That is a great book by Atul Gawande, who's written several great books. That one's a really good one because it analyzes you know, deeper, why we develop checklists, what are they useful for? And when are, frankly, they're not useful and when are they not used and why and how it's an evolving process. Uh, in that book and in this article, they do um, talk about the approach to use a checklist and they evaluate it in this research too. The challenge response approach, where one user calls out a step and the other executes the action versus the do then verify, more flexible. It allows the team to work through the checklist and then come back and verify the completeness. So they actually looked at that level of detail because these are gonna be recorded simulations. This yeah, is so a I, validated mm -hmm. tool, right? Their checklist has been val previously validated. So it's not a new checklist that they just made up um, mm -hmm. or reason why we like it. Yeah. So this is um, a study that, again, uh, their idea, and I, I put a hypothesis here. They didn't use the term hypothesis. They kind of, you know, I'm not sure if this was translated or, uh, um, but there there was some kind of awkward writing here and there that I, I um, you know, not the easiest read in some places um, I found, but um, I kind of understood the point. It was just, you know, maybe not worded so clearly, but uh, they didn't use the term hypothesis. They said our study aim is to show this, you know, and and that's not usually how we um, how we how we present a, a research study. We usually say this is what we're thinking. If we compare a control to an intervention, that the intervention is going to show something better, and that's um, basically what they were saying as compared to those who were not using uh, a checklist. And it wasn't that they actually weren't using the checklist; it wasn't they weren't overtly using a checklist. Um, the participants uh, that were using a checklist in their intervention group in a ROSC scenario, again using the European Resuscitation Council uh, guidelines on ROSC, will have a greater. So their hypothesis: they have greater adherence to the guidelines, more time-efficient management of the ROSC scenario. And and uh, better adherence to the sub even the subsections of the A B C D E compliant workflow. So they had a workflow, and they created something um, a, a scoring system. Um, so in a simulated ROSC scenario. So that was their their study aim itself. So the, this was done. So it was a prospective randomized case controlled study, full scale medical simulation at a university simulation center Munich in a standardized ambulance vehicle mock-up. And the um, participants though, in this case, and Michael, you mentioned this there, it's a little different. You got a system that has professional EMS providers here uh, in this area in Germany. Recruit, they're recruited from 26 ambulance service areas. They're gonna be running these ROSC scenarios, post-ROSC in teams of four, Pre-ROSC, you'll have two paramedics, then a team of a physician, an EMS, a pre-hospital physician, because that's the, the configuration, with a paramedic um, arrives and then runs the uh, rest of the ROSC scenario. That's my understanding. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong on that. I thought it was pretty impressive that 23 out of 26 of these ambulance service areas ended up being represented by the, the recruits that came in. The checklist was, there was a, uh, part of it was developed by an expert consensus using the ABCDE mnemonic because it's familiar and it has priority oriented care. And uh, this is the part I wanted to ask. And I don't know if any of you picked this up, trying to visualize all of this. I understand it's going to be in a simulator. It's going to be run and it's been videotaped, but they talked about the intervention group that the checklist was released um, by um a speaker by announcement on a speaker after the teams verbalized that there was ROSC. So I, I wasn't completely clear on this, but if what you're looking at now is the flow of, of, um, of how the study went. So you have the, the group teams by qualification two weeks before you, they had some 30 minutes of, of study content and not um, it was content on the study, not, on ROSC or it wasn't, you know, lecture material on the actual situation. It was more about the study itself. Some type of familiarization. 
and then a training scenario, and then um, probably getting familiar with this simulation center itself, um, from what I imagine, and then a briefing checklist by PowerPoint, followed by randomization, and then randomization into the two, the control group and the intervention group. So I took a pre-questionnaire um, that, you know, had a lot of things on it we can get into later, and then um, a, a what they encouraged was a timeout before and a timeout after. So briefing, they start the patient in VFib, the ambulance team first co comes in, the, there's a defibrillation, then there's a ROSC. The call out of ROSC, then if they're in the intervention group, the checklist, the doctors on the scene, the ROSC therapy, post-questionnaire after it's uh, concluded, uh, the, and you can see the total time there would have been 20 minutes. Um, it actually ended up being shorter, the post-questionnaire, and then the rebriefing. So that's the entire flow of the study. So I'm wondering um, what you thought. Katie, you run a lot of simulations. What uh, Did you have any kind of thoughts about how this was run? Like how the, the yeah, intervention I it, itself. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting that they didn't do any pre-training on the, the checklist. Oh, and by the way, these are working I should, professionals, I should say. These are not, they're participants, not, not. Uh, there were a couple people in training. I think they said three paramedic students in there, paramedics in training, but uh, post-licensure. Everyone's licensed and practicing. These are, this is not a pro, a, a pre-licensure program. I'm sorry. So um, say that again, Katie, you were, oh, did you freeze? I think Katie froze. I thought until Katie unfreezes, yeah. um, I, I thought it was really interesting that this, I, I read the speaker thing too, and I didn't put too much thought into it. I wonder if one of the reasons they do that is because if your partner's reading the checklist, there's a huge opportunity for error there. So mm -hmm. then you really have a lot more, I don't know, a, ability for something to go wrong, if you will. Yeah. Um, whereas if they're having it read from a speaker, then everybody's getting the checklist in the same format. Um, mm -hmm. Just from a study design, that would be my only thought um, on it. And I appreciate that they're practicing paramedics, which to me means they've likely run a scenario similar to this before. So they're experienced providers in that they're bringing in all of their, I know how to open the vials. I know how to charge the defibrillator. I've assessed an airway before I've assessed breathing before I've assessed circulation before to me, that should reduce any type of error that we might see or bias that we might see in the like they weren't familiar with checking a pulse. And so they weren't sure if there was a pulse or not, things like that. We sort of get rid of that when we use experienced providers. Um, so I can appreciate that. Yeah. And I think some of it was, that was the point, Alex. Yeah. I, um, oh, I didn't freeze. Okay, good. I, I <laughs> um, like generally am a, a, a strong believer in checklists and I have some critique for later that I think is good they didn't stress them out enough, I think is the, the biggest challenge I have with this, right? Like there was no pre-training on the device, which Katie will talk about here in just a second, but like they, they did two minutes of CPR and got ROSC, right? So their heart rate's probably not up all that much. You know, this is a very short scenario, just meant to, to, to look at this one thing. And the idea of checklisting is to land the dang plane when nothing else is working anymore, right? And so mm -hmm. when we have to go all the way down to that core brain function is when the checklist is, is most important. I don't know that they got all the way there yet, but also this is their first one, right? So like we, we you know, the, the car phone became the iPhone and that's okay. So that was my thought. Yeah. Katie, I think you're back. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, but the, yeah, I, I agree with Alex. I think that like when we are doing simulation, it's important to remember that you can use simulation for like individual learning objectives. And I think that this study is just kind of looking at one thing, right? So I don't think we're really looking at will this checklist work in the sense of how we would probably deploy it in the field, right? Because we would never deploy where we should never deploy a, a training tool or a job aid like this without training people on it. So they're just like in the middle of this cross, here's a checklist. You want to use it? or you should use it because you're in the, you know, the test group. And I don't think that's the like ideal way of deploying a job aid, mm -hmm. but I do think it's great that they had it. Like they're like, we're going to use the right peep amount of people for this. So this is how we usually respond to a code. So this is how we're going to like run the simulation. Um, they're using the right kind of mannequin for this task. Uh, and they kept a lot of things really standard, right? They're like, Hey, 
lots of things could change. This could take all sorts of different time periods, but we're going to set a 10 minute timer and he's going to stay unconscious the whole time and just kind of take away some of the noise that could really complicate things. Mm-hmm. So I do like that, like design of the simulation, but I think it's really important that we like do recognize the things Alex was saying, where there's a lot of stuff that we're missing from trans- direct transfer to field. I'm going to, I'm going to echo that and um, I'll see you and I'll raise you. Uh, I, I, um, uh, so I love checklists. I am a checklist manifesto junkie. And I think that what we've learned from aviation and other industries like surgery, where we have checklists that are intuitive, that have specific and very meaningful, uh, you know, evidence-based interventions are superbly helpful. When we try to fit them into the mnemonic a b c d e even if it doesn't intuitively make sense you know it's easy to remember but is it really easy for us to kind of go back and go what does a mean and there's some issues with this checklist particularly when you have extra words that aren't necessary in the middle of a of a code like i don't really yeah. care that a, a is a diagnostic, like I, I, it, it doesn't, the word is just extra noise that causes me to have cognitive load. I need to yeah. decrease the cognitive load, right? So just give me like, you know, what, what airway did I use? And just give me a checkbox, like which airway did I use? Um, if there's two people, one on airway, one on compressions, then maybe there should be two columns and the layout should be different so that you know, the the concept of, okay, I'm on this checklist, you're on that checklist. Um, and Dude, I, I completely agree. Yeah. I think that if we did a sub analysis of their like results, we would see that it's the visual design of the checklist that is potentially causing some of their results here. Because I think they would have had significantly more spread in their results had they first done sims with different versions of the checklist to see if the design impacts and if training impacts. Like if we reverse backwards three or four steps in this design process, this particular trial, I think would have significantly, you know, uh, more spread results. Absolutely. And and full sentences like, uh, you know, just having to think, okay, what does it say there? It says general procedure following A, B, C, D, E, and documentation. I, I'm in the middle of a of a of a code. I don't really need to read all of that. Mm-hmm. And that's that that extra cognition that it takes to go ignore this but keep this, this is really dangerous. I think in the middle of a crisis, um, I had occasion to be with a pilot who was showing me the checklists for. In his case, he said, you know, uh, um, the the uh, it was uh, Dick Blanchett. He says, "Look, the the uh, you're at a hundred thousand feet, or you're flying, or whatever it was, at whatever altitude, and your windshield is starred." And I said, "Well, I'm not a pilot." And he said, "But what does the checklist tell you to do?" And the checklist was so intuitive that a layperson like me, that's not a pilot, could read it and go, "Oh, it says drop to ten thousand feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just says drop to ten thousand feet." That's all it says. Like, this is the problem. This is the solution. Uh, And there was no like complicated if then this, that, you know, dot, 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 uh, bullet points. It was clear as a bell. And then after that, um, you know, you've got a couple of other things to check. And it's like one at a time declare an emergency (laughs) so Mm -hmm. fly the plane they do have things like that in there (laughs) fly the plane like don't forget to fly the plane while you're pushing the next few buttons you know (laughs) you know do chest compressions might be a really now this is for rosk and so you know check a blood pressure maybe oh you just hit on something, David, that I, I just ran ACLS and my students do that every time. And the ROSC algorithm does not start with take a blood pressure, do a 12 lead. They all do it. And mm-hmm. it really, I always say, if you got a pulse back, wouldn't you want to know if you got a human back? How would you mm-hmm. check to see if the person's back? Like, oh, I guess we should check responsiveness, see if they're breathing spontaneously. I'm like, look at the algorithms. It's right at the top. But mm-hmm. without fail, when you say, you know, or when the mannequin gets a pulse back, first thing they call out for is the 12 lead and then the blood pressure. And nobody's up at the head of the patient saying, 
you know, hey, you know, are you responding? Are they breathing? What's the pulse ox? Mm -hmm. What's the capnography? Ensure the ventilation. That's at the very top of the ROSC algorithm. Uh, so, and and I, I absolutely love it. And, and, and some of the colors here really make sense. Like you've got a red stop and that, that, that's intuitive. It's a stop sign. I love it. And then the color of, you know, blood down at, at, at the, the C for, for uh, circulation is red. And so, okay, that makes sense to me. But if it's not matched with something else and it doesn't make sense, then um, why, why are you stopping at the beginning of the algorithm? This does not make sense to me, right? This, this, the design of this particular algorithm with a big stop sign at the top, I'm thinking, no, don't stop, actually. You're, you're going to stop compressions, maybe. Like, uh, you've determined there's a pulse, stop compressions. Okay, but it doesn't say that. It says, you know, uh, you know stop and check things. And you're like, stop what? So it mm -hmm. should really be very keep it simple, stupid, and does not necessarily need to be in the order of A, B, C, D, unless it really, really needs to be in that order. I This kind of seems to me like what they have is trying to make a checklist, but it's been invaded by some of the principles of check sheetness, right? Where we have like scene safe, BSI, a number of patients, check seats, like it, there seems like a little bit of that formatting in here because it's a total blend of like <laughs> mnemonic, you know, ABCDs and, and actual, you know, usefulness. Well, one of the yeah. findings that they saw was that the like people who were using this stuck with it a little bit more and the people in the control group were a little out, out of order. But I'm wondering if that's really just more pushing that bit like what Megan and I see is they want to take a blood pressure right away. I probably would want to take a blood pressure in ROSC before I inserted a gastric tube or like maybe even simultaneously. So if they have four people and one person's putting in a gastric tube and somebody else is doing a blood pressure, is that out of order? Um, and how, you know, how is that being, I, I wasn't sure. No, they uh, skip it entirely. Paper. That's my problem. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Alex, it was time, like, couldn't tell. Alex and then Bill had something here. So this this is this is the check sheet. That was my feedback, right? So if we go down this list, right, we get to diagnostics, airway secured. And you'll notice in the the discussion, 75% of participants turned this into a call and response, even though it was not designed to be a call and response. So I said to Megan, airway secured. Megan says yes, right? If no, like prepare to do CPR again. But right now it's if no. Uh, document row of teeth and insert gastric tube, right? So a checklist drops you to 10,000 feet. A check sheet ensures that you still have a windshield, right? So we're moving, uh, the, the organization I'm with, we're moving our guidelines from narrative guidelines to flow sheet that, for this specific reason, right? Like if you're going to have a critical action, the critical action has to have a response. And that's the biggest like struggle I have uh, here from a quality engineering perspective. Bill, did you have something to add to this too? Of course. Um, I want to go back in what you said. And again, I know everyone here is familiar with it. If you've never read Checklist Manifesto, get it and read it. And the neat part is at the back, they talk about the process of how do you develop a check sheet. And they talk about everything almost everyone has touched on, simplicity, you know, logical way, simple to read, you know, and and I so I encourage that. And when we started developing checklists when I was working in Kansas, you know, and we had uh, one for cardiac arrest post an ROSC, we had, you know, we had about four or five only that we developed clinical checklists. We tested them all out in um, scenarios first and got lots of feedback and found ways to improve and came back and did more scenarios before we deployed them in the field. And then we still came back even after that to refine them again, to make them truly, you know, really working tools. But Alex brought the correct thing up is, and if you listen to enough of it, you need to have a, a response. You know, and that's very important, that acknowledgement that you need to have there. So there's a guide out there to help you improve a lot of the things we've talked about this checklist. Right. And that uh, the ROSC algorithm in ACLS, um, when uh, Katie and I were talking about the being, it's not necessarily that I care that, that it, there's an order um, as much as it's never done. 
Uh, so meaning that the students will say, okay, oh, there's there's a pulse back. Okay, get a blood pressure and a 12 lead, and then we're going to package up and we're going to leave. And no one ever, you know, wait for the blood pressure, see if I have to give pressers, you know, <laughs> fluids and pressers. And, and that entire first part of it, that has to do really with the patient and their brain. Um, are they spontaneously breathing? You know, what is their ventilatory status? What is their mental status if they have any? That's the one that that um, I think is is sometimes missing. And I think it's it potentially could be dangerous because your hands are off the patient. If you're just slapping something on them and standing back and listening to beeps on the monitor, you can miss um, a loss of a pulse. Um, and that's, that's I think, one of the things that uh, the, the reason for, for having checklists, but also having uh, re-evaluation of the checklist. So uh, Bill was talking about developing a checklist but it doesn't have to, it's it's not hardwired. Your checklist isn't, and, and too much of us, too many of us in, in EMS education are committed to this, still committed to this. Well, I need those check sheets, those national registry check sheets from whenever. Uh, and, and you have to go by that sheet. And that that, that was never the intention um, of national registry to, to have people just use this as a static thing, you know, forever and ever. Um, or anyone else. It's really a, a model, right? And, and Katie, you can <laughs> jump in here, but well, it doesn't it drive you crazy when people are like, I'm looking for the magical checklist that I can yeah. pass or fail somebody on. Well, and it's they like, even say this in this paper. They're like, yeah. well, you know, maybe we should empower people to use common sense. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like I I'm actually, I have that part open because it's my favorite paragraph in the entire paper. It's at the end. And they talk about individual subsections like this can consist of items that is, that are representing established measures of daily routine, like EKGs and blood pressures. And he said that checklists could be optimized and simplified by omitting these items, like the old one for starting an IV. Tangled tubing, ensure the tubing is entangled. All these little dinky, teeny, tiny steps that were like, okay, you know, really can we there was turned it into a six page checklist and then they said doing so acceptance of a checklist can be improved by empowering the provider to use common sense yeah i always laughed when like the intubation one started with ensure the scene is safe i'm like if yeah. you're at the point where you're deciding to intubate someone and you haven't checked for safety we like come on people like, yes. what, what are we doing yeah, and reevaluating. That's the other thing that comes up in the checklist manifesto. I'm sure David, you've and uh, Alex with all of the aviation and quality improvement. It's constantly being reevaluated. What is useful information? What's evidence based? And what's you know kind of useless stuff to to move out of the checklist? Yeah, and th there is some really good data that shows that, especially when people become experts. And, and have more experience that they actually start moving and doing steps different from the typical evaluative, like national registry style sheet. Um, so I think that we should be using that. Like we know that that data is there that should help design our process. Like if we are moving away to a different format, when we become more experts, why isn't that the format that we're using for our sheets? Mm, good point. Alex, did you have something to add? Yeah, I I wanted to like take a step back because we just had a really long conversation about the the challenges with this. So two things, um, and I said it before, but like the iPhone 15 came from the car phone, right? Like, so good research makes you think about what research comes next. Perfect research mm -hmm. doesn't have to be redone, and there's no such thing. So this is <laughs> this is this is foundational for you to take to your classroom and say, what if I add call and response, or what if I say stop, intubate the patient, or stop, place an airway what happens next and and so i just i don't want to miss that point of like you know I, I come from a quality management background and uh there's a reason that it takes three to five years to to get a, a quality management project where you want it and it's tedious and you want to give up all the time but yeah it's because you have to start someplace and work your way to the end very true very true and this is a guideline from the european resuscitation council so um, that, you know, this is something that that uh, the teams were familiar with coming in. They are practicing providers. They were 10 years, I think, on average, except for a couple of people that were in training. They were not pre-licensure. Everyone was a professional uh, EMS provider. So um, they would be familiar if you're doing your two-year resuscitation renewal. 
uh, certifications. I don't know if that's the same for the European Resuscitation Council uh, guidelines, but um, you know they would be familiar with some some aspect of it. The difference is you're actually drawing it out and bringing it deliberately forward into a checklist uh, for one team, and then for the others, they're kind of going by what they already know. Uh, and how much they've used that checklist depends upon many factors, right? So let's look at the results. So just looking at the checklist now, we've looked at it for a while. They the um, they looked at this performance score. So they measured the time at each interval. Um, so each of these sub intervals, they uh, they weren't given instructions on how to use the checklist, uh, either team. And then the performance score uh, was a a score that was created by the authors. I thought this part was really interesting. So they created this performance score. They based on uh, numerical values that were assigned to each of the 25 guideline statements in the European Resuscitation Council guidelines, and they valued them. They weighted them by their priority. So it was a consensus process. And I believe, um, you know, maybe Dave and Bill and uh, others who are familiar with how National Registry came up with, maybe Michael, you're familiar too, how they had originally way back came up with the the um, in the portfolio model, the checklist. I believe they went through some type of a consensus process like that where experts came up with which things are most the highest priority and within that documentation. We actually reviewed a study once uh, on this podcast uh, when they uh, about how to develop a checklist that was for, I think it was something like pigtail thoracostomy or something like that that was not in our scope, but it was the development of the checklist I thought was uh, really well done. So there's a lot of stuff out there on how to do this, but they use this performance score to weight each of these items. And then the other interesting thing I thought was they used targeted temperature management because it was novel. So all of these providers were out there, they were practicing, but this was the newest therapy that was added at the time. And these are 2010. So this is old. Um, and, and they say it in the, in the study, 2010 guidelines that Targeted temperature management, um, they used that as a, a value of five when they, um, you know, assigned these numbers. And they used that as a surrogate parameter for the speed of knowledge transfer from the guidelines to practical clinical application. So if you have uh, something that's new that's coming up, you know, give epinephrine earlier in the PEA acetolic arrest, um, just measuring that in your you know, in each of the groups might be a way to see how, and that's what they were using for targeted temperature management, the speed of knowledge transfer from guidelines to practical. I thought that was creative. I, I didn't um, pick up on that at first until I had a second read, but I don't know if that was um, something that came, it was something that came up in the study design. And then they looked at workflow, which was compliance with the checklist itself. These are all recorded and uh, you can see the results in this, uh, just the results of of the randomization. They had 20 scenarios in the intervention group, 21 uh, scenarios in the control group. Uh, these were, you can see the teams being randomized. They had a couple of video files broken and one violation of protocol. Um, and there were no differences in the total durations of the scenario. So when you see uh, the table one, they're looking at total duration uh, in, oh no, these are performance scores, sorry. But in the total duration of the scenario, there was no difference. The post-scenario questionnaire, both groups equally perceived it as realistic and were satisfied with their performance, which was, I, I always love those, how did you do, how confident were you kind of things in addition to measuring performance. But And then the timeout at the start of Ross treatment, um, that wasn't uh, significantly different in terms of uh, time and whether or not it was done for either of the groups. What we're looking at here is the mean performance score of the intervention versus the control group, and then broken down by section. So um, the, they came up with the, the conclusion that the mean performance score of the intervention group was significantly higher than in the control group with a strong effect size. I'm wondering about the overlap and I'm wondering if Alex or or somebody can comment on in kind of the overlap and and whether or not we're looking at something that's leaning in one direction, you know, or I mean I guess if they set up their statistics to evaluate this effect size, um that's what we're looking at. But the performance scores between the intervention and control group, you see the uh, standard deviation, you see quite a bit of overlap, but I'm wondering if that matters to anybody here. 
<laughs> hearing silence, I'll say no, <laughs> Alex. I can yeah, I had to I had to turn my camera on. I had to evaluate Sorry. whether people wanted that. Um, so I you know, they say it in their results, but really their only significance here is, is the performance score. And so even with these Cohen's D scores, um, which are, are kind of all over the board, even with those Cohen's D scores, a, a non-matching p-value is is a challenge, right? So section A and the performance score, really extremely statistically valid, really strong Cohen's correlation. So essentially this is saying, does it have an effect, yes or no? Um, but like in section B, 0 0.0171.7% non-randomization, probably good enough. That 0.687 tells you that it's the, the data would only suggest a moderate effect from the checklist, right? So Mm -hmm. it, taking those all together, I would say for sure the performance score in section A really valid. Section B maybe on the cusp and then the rest of it, the statistical validity is a little bit all over the board. Yeah. Mike? Uh, I read this to say we need more checklists. There's a lot of variability and I, I, it's not clear that the variability gets changes as you go. So like, it might be like, we gave up on the checklist. Clearly they kept using the checklist. Um, but to me, this shows there's variability in how we're assessing our ROSC patients and we should have a standardized checklist for it. Now, this may not be the ideal checklist, but to me, it showed me there's variability across the board here, which means that nobody's doing it the same way. Um, so we need something. Yeah. And and ROSC is peri-arrest, right? Because ROSC patients re-arrest. So it's it's a there the importance of a checklist in a ROSC patient, I would think would be huge. Yeah, So especially because Tanner Smith had just published a great paper that said the more likely you rearrest, the more likely you are to never wake back up. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's a Yeah. great idea. So this is a really important one. And you know, I can't help but think that something here could be replicated in um you know paramedic students in multiple you know, in continuing education programs um looking at uh you know being more deliberate about a checklist what what aspects of the checklist have evidence behind them and i think that was the i thought that was the beauty of this study is that they started with the evidence and waited the items based on the evidence. So imagine if you did that. I mean, Katie, imagine if you're you're teaching your you're going through a a meeting with your faculty and developing a checklist and you've got to start with the evidence first. And not just the evidence in our case, we're both in pre-licensure programs. So initial education. Not only the evidence for the treatment, but the evidence for the educational, you know, aspects of it. So simulation-based education, we know that, and retrieval practice and interleaving and all of those things have the foundation of educational evidence that these students are going to remember this more. So you have both pressures. <laughs> Yeah, no, honestly, too, the, um, we're starting to do this, at least in our program, around airway management and looking at some of the like statement um, in the airway compendium from NAMSP. Um, but one of the things they said was, we know from education uh, evidence, like you're saying, that what you emphasize and what you spend time on is like what they think matters. And in so many of our advanced life support classes, we're not spending emphasis and time on BLS airway management when it is the most critical and it does have the patient outcomes. So we looked at that and I looked at the hours that we're spending on what thing in teaching airway. And we added a whole bunch more hours of just like BMV and basic airway adjuncts and positioning. Um, and it hasn't really, we have, we don't have a problem with their ability to innovate. They like don't have bad outcomes, but we do still have problems with their ability to ventilate with a bag mask. Mm -hmm. So like we're adjusting that and even just changing our curriculum based on the evidence. And I think adjusting the way we're doing our skill sheets And it's just, it's like, really, did you do all this BLS stuff? And if you haven't, like you've automatically failed before you even can put a laryngoscope in someone's mouth. So Yeah. um, it, it, all of us, we need to be doing this in education, <laughs> like changing. Yeah. And, and we know we have these gifts dropped into our lap, like the airway compendium from NAEMSP. Um, we started to do something. I don't know if it's making a difference, but it, it, it feels like it later in simulation. At the very beginning of the program, they have to, they're handed some of these papers, these uh, position papers, especially the ones that we think matter the most, like ventilation. 
Um, and they have to, in their groups, come up with recommendations for their class for the rest of the program. So anytime in simulation, if they said, we recommend that two-person bag valve mass ventilation is superior to one person, then they have committed the class to doing two-person bag valve when they have the resources. And so we can follow that all the way through. And that's something they've said, it's based on evidence, they believe in it. And so now when you're later doing simulations and they've got all the noise of all the other information in there, they can say, have we held to the thing that we ourselves recommended based on the evidence? I think yeah, when they come up with the idea, it, it sinks a little bit better. <laughs> We need to be using these checklists in primary education and we need mm -hmm. to be teaching them the way we want to use them. Like, um, thank God that the psychomotor test is finally out the window because we can start yeah. using calculators in skill sessions, like electronic yeah. resources in skills and not worry about like not training them in the way that they're going to be certification tested. But, oh my God, we have so much data that says you cannot do a GCS unless you have a job aid. Yeah. Like people cannot do it. And like we don't let them use these job aids and you're like, come on, we should be, we should be training and testing the way that we know the data says we should be doing the job. Yeah. And especially in the interest of patient safety. Right. And we yeah. also know that there is evidence of trans. And, and this is the point where we can say this is called translational science. We've talked about this a little bit before. It's a great article by William McGahee, who was uh, one of the major educational researchers on the uh, American Heart Association education front. And uh, it, it was years ago and it was called medical, medic, I can't remember what it was called, but it was on a translational sciences in there. It's about medical education as a translational science, meaning uh, going from, this would be translation level one, you would train um, and see it in the in a lab type setting and and see differences in practice and get some you know questionnaire survey results and also look at changes in practice then the next level would be in the clinical setting do they carry this out into the field this this same practice and then the next level after that you know is the patient outcome affected and then the next level after that is is the community affected and somewhere in there there's return on investment and there have been things that have drawn it that far, like central line insertion in the ICU, which this paper mentions that has gone from simulation-based mastery learning and deliberate practice in the, among residents all the way out to return on investment, you know, reduction in length of stay, reduction in um, infections. So, Michael? They actually, they cited checklist use in the operating room with the same thing. Yeah. So I think, again, as we as we look at this, it's how do we make an effective checklist and how do we get people to use it? Bringing us back to the, I, I don't know if you have figure four in your slide deck yeah. as we go through, but I thought this was an interesting um, result as well. I'm not, I think it's the next one. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Because it shows that they're starting to deviate from the checklist, both the control group, ironically, the intentional group and the control group are measured here. Um, maybe, or do you want to talk about it, Megan, and then I'll share my thought on no, it? No, go ahead. Go ahead. So, under. Um, so this is how they work, how they stayed within the checklist on the A, the B, the C, the D, and the E. And it shows that they start to deviate from it as it gets towards the end. Now, um, I, my thought is on it like that may be okay because maybe you fixed everything. But my other thought is if you're flying the plane and that's our checklist standard, we don't want you deviating from the checklist. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe that means you fix something. But my understanding is you, when you're flying the plane, you have to complete the entire checklist. You don't just fix the problem and then be done with it um, because there's other stuff in there. So this was the, this was a take home point to me is. I wonder if these people had checklists in their initial education, because if mm -hmm. it was never printed on them and then you sort of try to get them to use it all in the same setting with little training ahead of time, um, they're more likely to go back to their their past practice and say, well, I've always done it this way in the past. So I'm going to keep doing it. And you're like, no, go back to the checklist. Um, so I thought that was interesting as they as they work their way through the checklist. I think you've raised an issue and we still have 10 minutes left. So I'm going to bring it back up again. And um, by the way, there was, oh, I guess uh, somebody answered in the Q&A. Uh, there was somebody who had mentioned in the question and answer another resource for checklists. Um, and uh, that was uh, answered in the Q&A. You, you raise a really, I'm going to bring this word up, culture. So the culture surrounding the use of checklists. And that I think that's the elephant in the room. So like you said, even if they get the checklist in the initial training, how fast is that undone 
in particular cultures, I'm not saying universally, but um, how fast does that that mentality or that use of a safety tool get undone when they go into a clinical practice setting? Um, or even, you know, for, for some of us, we've seen it happen on internships. Yeah, you don't need to ask that every single time. So yes, they do. Allergies to medications is important. So um, yeah, so so culture. And, and there's a great quote from, and I can't remember if it's from the Checklist Manifesto or from another one. It must be in, in that one. I can't remember. It might be in, in Being Mortal, which is another great book by Atul Gawande, where he says, um, you know, culture strangles innovation in the crib. I believe it was something very graphic like that. Like, you know, culture is there for a purpose. That's why it's so persistent. That's why culture stays. And he said, but it strangles innovation in the crib. And I would consider this, you know, innovation, you know, the use of a checklist to improve something is an innovation. Yeah, I think we have. Oh, Katie, sorry. Well, I was just thinking, like, we do have like one place in EMS where we consistently use checklists, um, or something similar that I've always seen done horribly bad. Um, and thinking of refusals and AMA, and where we have like what like the factors of why they're refusing, and I've literally seen people just click all of them. And I'm like, you're really, you're clicking that they could die because they don't want to go to the hospital for their skin knee. You really think that you should click that. Yeah. And like, there's a watch click everything every time. And I always tell them every time that they could die. I mean, there's a possibility. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, if they get hit by a bus crossing the street, they're more likely to die in their car driving away from the skin knee than they are from the skin knee. Like, this is absolutely ridiculous. So I do think part of our culture is like, we get these tools and then we don't actually like sim them before we introduce them look at all of the data showing about like the lucas and the autopulse when they were put into high performance teams they actually dropped the the um resuscitation outcomes because they weren't implemented in the proper or the best way that was a great transition to what the i, I was this table is what i spent my time reading this article on and i, I love the discussion we've had about it. it means we've picked a good article but um they had also said that they looked at the ttm right the targeted temperature management mm -hmm. this new thing and they found that the groups who were using the checklist discussed it almost double than in the control teams so when rolling out new technology, my thought was, ah, right, we've talked about it in class. We don't know exactly where it goes in our algorithm. So giving you a checklist for new technology is really helpful. It brought me back to what you were saying, Megan, about the initial, again, we need to train them initially to use the checklist. And then it's easy to add things in. And Alex can probably tell us what the, the debacle that may come when changing a, a job aid or a memory aid. But um, it made me think back to the they would not have probably done the new technology had it not been in the checklist. At least that's what the study demonstrates or the larger group actually did do it. So the checklist benefited the newer technology. And again, without the checklist, we go back to our bad, our past practice. I don't want to say bad habits. I want to say mm -hmm. our past practice because sometimes it's good habits. But um, if we want to roll out new things, here's an advancement on how to do it. Add it into the checklist and you're more likely yeah. to get adherence. And evidence, I think, is so important. I mean, it's. I think that that maybe you could get people to commit to things if you have some degree of evidence behind it. Um, if you have the evidence that this is really important to do, this is going to avoid and in ROSC is going to avoid rearrest and rearrest, and then bringing out the numbers that you were talking about, Mike, about um, rearrest. The you know reduces the likelihood you're ever going to come back. So um, that's. I think that's a powerful. Yeah, piece of information for for someone to actually buy into a a checklist, and maybe it can cut through culture. So I think that's uh, you know that's one of the important things. And and to to be um, fair to people that are you know out there and saying, well, you know, a lot of this stuff is is baloney. You know, put that away, student or new paramedic or whatever. Maybe it's because we haven't made them valuable and they're not worth you know worthwhile and. Can you tell, and let me ask you and Alex this one too, can you look at a checklist and tell whether it was written with the spooky liability is around the corner, we might get sued versus the, this is important for patient care? Do you know the the checklist that we use every day in EMS that we probably don't think about enough is, is EMD, right? 
like especially the mm. like the Clausen method of EMD that like the the copywritten version those right like they have one to I, I work for a county government now and so our fire dispatchers have one for what to do if your Prius um, gas pedal gets stuck down right like those ones are not written for liability they are written to to reduce pain suffering and death prior to the arrival of professionals. Mm. And then there are things like the built-in AMA checklist that I wrote for my organization that stinks. Um, that, yeah, to your point, like we're we're doing it to make sure that we address our li our general liability as much as we can. But then, what's the evidence behind that? Does it reduce general liability? You know, that's the other thing. So there's the you know the evidence for for both, not just medical outcomes, but also the the whole liability outcome. Absolutely. The one thing I wanted to just share too, because I, I did not see this the first time I read the paper, but I was just reviewing the discussion and they said the effect was achieved. So they, they found some, you know, some additional guideline adherence and some things like this, but the effect was achieved without the need to invest in additional process time. And that struck me this time that I read it after our discussion, because that was one of the things we discussed is, did they have any training on the tool? And so maybe part of this study design was actually that they didn't want to do a lot of mm -hmm. training on the tool. They wanted to rely on experienced providers knowing some of what to do. I don't know that I think that's the best way to do it. I don't think that's maybe the worst way to do it either. Um, but I find that interesting that maybe this study design had something to do with like, we intentionally didn't want you to have a bunch of training on this tool because it may bias the results. Instead, we want to rely on your experiences as experienced clinicians. Uh, I, I would wonder if that had something to do with it. Mm hmm like a pragmatic study. Bill? Yeah, almost. <laughs> so I know we're getting to the end of the hour here and it comes quickly and stuff. So I've enjoyed the paper and I think it's a good, it's a good read. Um, and it should help guide, but you know, it, it gets back to a fundamental thing that we've talked about. We talk about the culture of the agencies that these people will go to, but we need to also remember the culture of the educational community, mm -hmm. you know, some of the ways we teach are very fixed and rigid and they don't practice any of any of the new teaching principles that exist or anything like that. You know, it's, it's discouraging for me to when I sit in training programs of other people and I just go, no wonder no one learns anything here, or at least in my, from my point of view, no one learns anything. It's just my point of view, but I, I like the paper. I think it's a good start. I believe we need more work in this area and to find out what is a good way, what is the best practice to not only develop, but then uh, indoctrinate, not indoctrinate, but to get it into your organization, try to change the culture and everything. And and there should be uh, a dovetail between what goes on within the initial education programs to what's going out in the agencies that these people will go to do internships or eventually be employed by. So, but thanks everyone. I do appreciate uh, this topic and this paper. Yeah, this is great. And I, again, I'm, I think the other take home I have is when you're reading a paper, um, it's worth a second and a third read. And I think you've heard that from all of us that, you know, you read it once, you kind of have your judgments, and then you read it again, you kind of dig into it. That's what a journal club is great for. And that's what we're here for. So uh, to dig a little deeper into the study and see if you, you know, if we can um, pick out some of the great nuggets of research, this is not easy stuff to do, um, do research and, and publish it, especially in the way that they did it, a randomized uh, case control study with real providers, talk about herding cats. Uh, into the simulation center and recording and going through painstaking, you know, review and that kind of thing. Uh, I do want to thank Sam for um, uh, posting that question in the chat. Uh, the work of Sean Maxwell, spelled S-H-A-U-G-H-N, if you want to look up, from 2014. He is re um, referred to uh, in the uh, checklist manifesto uh, as well, but the there is work from 2014 that created some. So he created some simple design checklists also, uh, and, and then designed to reduce cognitive load. I love we've talked about cognitive load a few times. Um, the simplicity of a checklist, especially in a high um, risk and high, you know, uh, cognitive load situation, uh, is is an important thing uh, for adherence and for timing. 
So I want to thank all of our panelists. This has been a great discussion. Thank you, uh, everyone out there for listening and for joining us today. Remember, we'll be back on Friday, March 22nd. And the article we're going to be looking at on March 22nd is using simulation to teach learners in healthcare behavioral skills related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is a scoping review of the literature, but we're gonna have a great conversation about this. Um, but remember before then, we have a PCRF Clinical Journal Club that's on Monday, March 11th. Again, 10 a.m. Central, right? No, 10 a.m. Pacific, noon Central. I'm at Pacific. So uh, to join us live each month, you can register on the website, prehospitalcare.org. And then remember, you can find us on the YouTube channel. Thank you everyone for joining us and we will see you next month. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at www.pcrfpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website at www.prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsor, Limmer Education, providing education tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey.